Hey, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of my very intermittent podcast series. Today, we're going to talk about all things video and photography-wise when it comes to getting great images of wildlife. Wildlife photography is something I've been doing now for about 30 years, and I've filmed wildlife on pretty much every continent in the world. Uh, everything from birds to gorillas to butterflies and bats, wolves, lions, tigers, elephants, and even uh, attempted a little bit of underwater, but that's another topic altogether. So I have a lot of experience in this. In fact, I've even won a National Emmy Award for Outstanding Cinematography in a nature documentary about hummingbirds. So. I'd like to try to convey some of that experience and information to you today, and hopefully you'll gain a, a few insights and maybe think about things you didn't think about before when you were out filming or shooting photographs of wildlife. Okay, here we go. So as with everything, we need to think about what it is we actually want to do. What kind of photograph do we want to make? What kind of video do we want to make? What kind of story do we want to tell? And basically what that means is we have to decide what kind of animal we want to film. Which animal is it that we really want to go capture? Is it the hummingbird that visits our feeder every day? Is it our cat, our dog, our rabbit? Or maybe you're going on a safari to Africa and you're excited to take photos of a lion or an elephant or a giraffe, or even Antarctica, where you might come into contact, well, you will, with penguins and seals and all sorts of other bird life. It's important to narrow down your goals first. So if I want to shoot birds, then I have a certain mindset. If I want to shoot maybe the gophers in my backyard, that's another mindset and different tools. But for now, we're going to just talk generics and I'll throw in examples along the way. Say, for instance, we want to film birds in our backyard. What are we going to need? Well, first of all, you're going to need a long lens. You won't be able to do that with a wide angle lens. You're going to want to have that reach of a long lens. But then that also constrains us in a little bit of ways. Most consumer long lenses are limited in their maximum aperture to, say, around 5, 4.55, or even 6.3 or so. And what that means is when you're at the end of the lens or you're zoomed all the way out uh, to maybe 400 millimeters or 600 millimeters, you're going to need more light because of that higher f-stop. So you're going to need to either shoot in direct sun or with a higher ISO, which obviously leads to more noise, or with with a slower shutter speed, which uh, you can risk getting some motion blur if it's a quick subject. So the first thing to think about is the lens you're going to use and then the limitations that lens places on you. And especially if you're shooting a long lens, you're probably going to want a tripod. You can shoot in bright sunlight, you know, on a 600 millimeter f6.3, for instance, a Sigma lens or something. You can still do that handheld, but you're going to need some bright sunlight and you're going to need to put the stabilization on on the, on the lens and just make Make sure you're, you're shooting at a high shutter speed. Although you can shoot wildlife on a wide angle lens. Now, why would I use a wide angle lens? Say, for instance, you want to shoot the squirrels in your backyard eating all your food, or you want to shoot something small on the ground, uh, maybe in a, in a nest coming in and out. Well, then you can actually place your camera near your subject, place it on the ground, or place it on a tripod somewhere where you know the subject is going to come, and then you could just operate it remotely and get the shot you want remotely. Uh, you can, for instance, on Canon, there's an app you can put on your iPhone where you can control your camera remotely from 
maybe 20 feet away. It's sort of a weak Bluetooth uh, Wi-Fi connection. And there are other third-party products you can buy, which, which give you far greater range and a far more stable remote control signal. And then you can even use macro if you're trying to film insects or ladybugs or butterflies or bees. A macro is a great choice for those kinds of small, small, small animals. In those kind of animals, uh, they don't care if you're super close. Uh, bees and butterflies and ladybugs don't really care if you're right on top of them. So it's, an, it's a really interesting way to see the world if you can film really unique angles of animals at that scale, at that depth. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing to do, especially if you combine, for instance, a ladybug on a green leaf with a few morning droplets of water and then the reflections inside that water and on the leaf and all of those things, you can get wonderful photography with a macro lens. Again, remote control is, is going to be a big option for some of these things. You're going to want to be able to trigger your camera remotely and that is the key thing. For instance, if you don't have a remote control, you might have to build some kind of blind uh, to hide behind so the animal doesn't know you're there or even it might hear you but it can't see you. Uh, you can even just hang up a sheet that works. Sometimes I'll back my car. Actually, I have a Subaru Outback and I'll back end of it up. I was filming ground squirrels a year ago or so in Mexico and I backed the car up near their nest and I just opened the hatchback and I hung a sheet over the hatchback and just covered me and then I, I laid it in the back of the car on a furniture blanket and I just laid there with the sheet covering me and I got all these great photos of the mom ground squirrel with her little baby. She had three little babies and, and they had no idea that I was there behind the sheet and we were at a safe distance, maybe six feet away. I was shooting with a 400 millimeter lens. It was really nice. So you don't have to spend a lot of money on a blind. Uh, they do make professional blinds, but you can use a tent. Uh, you can use a shade. You can use a sheet. You can even sit there incredibly still and the animal after a while or every day, if you have the time, uh, you can go out at the same time every day and just sit very quietly. And most times the animal will get used to you after a few days and start begin to trust you and, and do their normal behaviors even with you there. Okay, so tripods. Um, you're going to need a good tripod, depending on obviously what lens you have on how heavy it is, is sort of going to dictate uh, which tripod you have. But uh, you can never get a big enough tripod. You can never get a heavy enough tripod, especially if you're shooting in a very long lens in the wind or something like that. The heavier base you have, the heavier foundation you have, it'll help your stability. However, then you trade off with weight and cost and all of those things. And a good tripod with a, with a fluid head is especially necessary if you're shooting wildlife videography. If you're trying to make a movie about animals, you really have to have a solid tripod, which allows you very smooth movement of the camera so you can follow the animal so you can sort of be there and, and track the animal when it moves in a very nice cinematic way. Obviously, sometimes you might need a flash. Flashes are a little weird with animals. Flashes are great with insects because they don't really care. But flashes with other kind of animals are mostly a no-no. Uh, I would not suggest using a flash on a bird or a mammal because it really disorients them. Uh, and it would to you as well if uh, somebody popped off a flash in your, in your face. Now, I say this, uh, I don't mean any disrespect to insects, but they don't seem to care uh, with a flash, a ladybug or a bee or a butterfly. But with uh, more advanced animals, I would say 
try to stay away from a flash. Now you can use continuous lighting, which is certainly possible, like a bright LED lamp or something like that, which isn't so disruptive in their life. So you could you could put the light up and just leave it on uh, during the day. For instance, if you're trying to fill in a dark shadow of a bird nest or something like that, you could put a light up on the tree, go away, let the animal sort of uh, acclimatize to the light, and then you could go in and, and trigger your camera or, or get up there on a ladder and, and actually get in the nest and, and, and take some photos. So I'd call this section two. You need to understand your animal. You need to understand what motivates your animal. You need to understand what kind of behavior your animal does. You need to understand what it is you're actually maybe trying to discover about your animal. Is there a certain behavior that you've read about that you really want to capture? Are you just trying to get some cute photos or video of a certain animal? Mostly uh, the best photos and videography of an animal shows some kind of behavioral aspect of that animal. Sometimes the animal doing something interesting. Um, taking care of its young or defending itself or uh, mating or, you know, any one of the numerous just general activities of nature. It's what really helps you tell a story about that animal. So, so actually documenting how that animal lives its life instead of just a pretty portrait. Now, animal portraits are wonderful and beautiful, and I've shot many, many, many of them. And sometimes when the animal's not doing anything particularly interesting, you can get a wonderful pose or a wonderful look. But really the most exciting wildlife photography is animals hunting or animals fighting or defending themselves or doing mating rituals or whatever it is unique to, you know, that that animal does. So before you set out to shoot even the squirrels or the gophers in your backyard, do a little bit of research and, and find out what makes that specific species of, of squirrel unique. Uh, is there anything that it does uh, that you want to try to capture? Maybe there's something about the, the little gopher in the backyard that eats up your garden that you can't stand, but if you if you were to actually go out there and get a wonderful little shot of him, you never know what you're going to get. It could be super cool. And don't overlook the little animals like the gophers and the squirrels. Everybody wants a great shot of a lion, but that's it. Everybody has a great shot of a lion that's ever been to Africa. So, you know, don't overlook what's in your own backyard uh, or even in your fish tank or even in your, you know, your own guinea pig or whatever. When you do choose an animal, then sort of spend some time watching that animal. If you have the luxury of time, uh, if you're on a vacation or something, you may not have this luxury. But if you're at home and you're trying, let's just say, stick with the gophers, just watch the gophers for a little while before you decide where you're going to set up your camera. I mean, are they active in the morning? Are they active during the day? Active in the evening? You know, when would be the best time? When's the best light? When's the best activity? You know, because like, for instance, if you're on a safari in Africa and you show up at 10 o'clock in the morning to a pride of lions, what you're going to get is a whole bunch of sleeping lions. For instance, if you want great lion shots, you need to be the first people out of your lodge. Even before your safari driver says that's when you're going to go, you need to prod him and say, no, we're going a half an hour before that. We're leaving in the dark and we're getting to the pride of lions just as the sun comes up. We're not waiting until the sun comes up after we've had a nice luxurious breakfast. Then we go out. You're going to miss it. But it's also more interesting, I think, if you can get a specific behavioral aspect of that animal doing something unique that maybe people aren't used to seeing. Everyone has beautiful photos of or has seen beautiful photos of lions and elephants and things like that. But I think it's more interesting when we see a lion or an elephant doing something unpredictable that maybe we haven't seen be before. So again, take a few minutes to try to get to know your animal and what makes it unique and interesting and, and how best you might capture that. Make friends with your animal. 
you know, build trust. If you have animals in the backyard, you can set up your blind ahead of time and just leave it there. So they they acclimatize to that uh, new item in their environment. Uh, you can leave your tripod out in the backyard for, you know, overnight or whatever, and they get used to it. You can set up your blind in the backyard and they get used to it. Uh, and it's not such a shock. So when you go out and set it all up and try to get that photo at the same time, You'll have a lot better luck if you allow these foreign elements into the environment and let the animals get used to them. A lot of animals are very predictable. So a lot of animals will feed at a certain time during the day. A lot of animals have very sort of set rituals, like they will leave their nest for a certain amount of time. They go to the same places to look for food. They do certain things uh, during the day. They sleep at certain times. They're active at certain times. The more you can anticipate your animal, the better you know your animal, then the better you will be ready for that photograph. So for instance, a hummingbird is very predictable. Uh, how long it usually stays on its roost and when it comes to feed and the difference, you know, back and forth and back and forth. So you, after a while of that, getting to see that, you can anticipate when that hummingbird will return and you can start rolling your camera, you know, video so that you don't press record. When you see the animal, you actually press record before the animal does what you want it to do. So again, if you have the time, if you have the luxury of time, time is the ultimate luxury, if you have that luxury, then invest it in learning more about your animal. Of course, if you're on a vacation or you're on a safari in Kenya and you and you drive up and there's a pride of lions, you may not have any time to actually get to know them, uh, to know what they do. You might just have a few minutes with them. Your driver might just give you a few minutes with them and you have to take whatever photos you can get. But in the case of lions, as a sidebar, uh, if you ever do go to Kenya or Tanzania or Uganda or whatever, uh, encourage, insist actually that you leave a half an hour or even 45 minutes before your guide says you need to. You don't need that luxurious breakfast in your beautiful lodge. You need to be out photographing. So that means you leave in the dark. Uh, you usually leave, say it, uh, your guide will want to leave at 6 or 6.30 and you say, no, no, I'm going to leave at 5.30. So that you're driving in the dark. You're looking for the animals just as the sun comes up because then they're super active. Because if you ride up on some lions at 10 o'clock in the morning, they're going to be sleeping. So you're going to get some beautiful photographs of lions sleeping. Anyway, that's a sidebar. Uh, depends again on what animal you're shooting. If you're just in your backyard and don't overlook what's around you in your in your backyard and in your house. I mean, your own pets, the animals in your backyard, uh, they do different things. If you have seasons where you live in the winter or the summer, there's a lot of options really close by. You don't need to go to Africa and Antarctica to get amazing shots of animals. You, you can do it right in your own backyard. And again, that's sort of lens choice photographic technique, time of day, you know, all of these things you can factor in, put in the blender, turn it on and, and, and see what comes out. And, you know, if you get the mix right, you're going to get a wonderful, wonderful photograph no matter where you are. Here's one that I like to bring up, uh, and I think it's really important, is to respect your subject. Treat your subject as you would treat any person. Uh, don't get too aggressive with your subject trying to get your photograph. The more aggressive you get, then what you're going to photograph is a reaction to you, not a normal behavior that the animal does by itself. You will get a behavior that's influenced directly by you. Uh, and now it's okay, for instance, if you're on a long lens and the animal happens to look at you, but if you're getting too close and the animal is getting defensive, the animal is making noises, the animal is in a in a purely defensive posture, then it's easy for you to see that you have now changed the dynamic. You are influencing the actual environment. That's why you're in a blind. That's why you're on a long lens. 
because you don't want to intimidate the animal. You don't want to frighten the animal. You don't want to influence the animal's behavior in any sense of the way. And now all you have to do is go to any national park in any place in the world, and you'll see lots of people harassing animals, catcalling animals, chirping at animals, clapping at animals, honking their horns, throwing food, um, snapping their fingers, whistling, clapping, all of these things. These are all huge no-nos, huge no-no, no-no, no-nos. If you're ever on a safari or with a photo tour and you see anybody doing these these behaviors, so maybe there's you're at Yellowstone and there's an elk 50 yards away and somebody starts making all these noises to get the elk to look at them, tell them to shut up and, and be rude about it because they are ruining the environment for everybody else who's there, who's interested in capturing uh, what's actually happening in nature. So please do not use it. And, and it comes very easily. You know, you just might go... Hey, 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 you know, hey, woohoo. And, you know, that's a very natural behavior for people to do. I'm even guilty of it over my career. I've done it a few times, just sort of, hey, hey, hey. You know, you don't even sometimes think you're doing it. You know, everybody, when they see a horse, they go, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but that's what you do when you see a horse. Just sort of be aware of that, you know, just sort of be a little bit more aware of your own behavior on how that interacts with, with nature and how it influences uh, your subject. Always be ready for your animal. Always be ready for your animal and always be ready for them. You're there for them. They're not there for you. They're not your entertainment. They're not your uh, clown show. They're not your theater. So you need to be ready for them. If that means getting up at three in the morning, so you're there in your blind, uh, in the dark before they even wake up, that's what it means. If it means staying up until the middle of the night, if you're going to try to get a sea turtle laying eggs on the beach, a lot of times they do it at three in the morning. That means you got to stay up until three in the morning. That means you got to sit on the beach and not talk in the dark. You can't have a flashlight. You can't make noise. So you have to sit there by yourself or with other people quietly. You can't stare at your phone. You can't do anything. So you have to understand what the animal requires of you. And that can be challenging if you're a professional wildlife photographer. It means you have very odd hours. It means you have to sometimes sit in very uncomfortable positions for long periods of time. Sometimes you can't move for long periods of time. Sometimes you can't talk for long periods of time. You can't turn on your headlamp. You know, whatever it is, you know, once you're in position, that animal has to sometimes trust, you know, just get used to you. Like I was saying earlier, you know, putting your blind in the backyard and letting your animal habitualize to that blind. Well, it's the same with you. There's been hundreds of mornings where I had to get up at three or four in the morning and be in position, you know, by the time the sun gets up. So you just got to do what you got to do. That's the basic, basic line there. And the biggest thing I think with animals, the absolute biggest thing with photographing or video with animals is patience. You need to exercise patience in a way that probably most of us have forgotten how to do. And what I mean by that is that animals function on a wholly different time scale uh, than we do. Their, their expectations of life, their rhythms of life, their to-do list, for instance, is not as urgent or pressing or long uh, as ours. But again, patience, 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 especially with, with larger animals or even smaller animals, you know, they might just walk around and do nothing for days on end. And then all of a sudden they do what it is you want them to do. For instance, I'll go back to the safari situation. I always tell people when they're on safari, if they can identify a few animals that they're really interested in, instead of trying to go to Kenya and get a picture of every single kind of animal that lives on Masamara, 
which is, you know, lots and lots of different varieties of birds and animals. And you can drive around all day and you can get a picture of a jackal and a picture of a hyena and a picture of a, a lion and a picture of a leopard and a picture of an elephant and a hippo and a rhino and a wildebeest and all those things. But if there's a specific animal that really interests you, then spend more time with that animal so you can actually get to get to understand it better and have more opportunities to shoot what it is you just want. A few times uh, when I've been to Africa, uh, I've been there uh, numerous times. On more than one occasion, I've been sent there just to photograph lions, try to get actually a very specific behavior of a lion, which I have not gotten yet. It's a human wildlife conflict issue with lions. And so I will tell the driver, if I'm here five days uh, and I, I don't care about elephants and I don't care about hippos, I'm only here to see lions. Sometimes they get a little surprised and they're like, what, you don't care about elephants? And I'll tell them, no, I've seen thousands of elephants. I need just lions on this trip. So if you have the luxury of time and the luxury of, of that kind of a thing where you can dedicate all of your time or a lot of your time to one animal or whatever, then when you find that pride of lions at six o'clock in the morning when the sun comes up, you have the luxury to follow them or you actually have the luxury just to sit and watch them interact, especially if they have little cubs or whatever. So a lot of people will drive up on a pride of lions and everybody gets their cameras and everybody's chit-chatting and oh my God, it's a lion, it's a lion. And and A, you're, you're breaking the first rule, you're making way too much noise. And B, everybody whips out their camera, puts it on high-speed shutter and just... And everybody has 300 shots of a sleeping lion. And then they drive away. And then when you get back to your lodge, you flip through Lightroom of your 300 identical shots that you just shot. Now, what's the point of that? Well, you have a shot of a lion. What, did you learn anything about the lion? Did you show me your family, your friends, anything about a lion that I don't know, that big cats like to sleep 14 hours a day or whatever it is? No, because you spent two minutes there and then you drove away because maybe somebody on the Jeep saw an elephant and you're like, oh my God, I got to see the elephant. And that's fair if you've never seen these animals in the wild. Of course, you get very excited. You get very enthusiastic. You want to document these experiences and bring them home to your friends and your family. But again, if you just want a shot of a lion sleeping, you don't need to go to Africa. You can, there's millions of them on the internet. So if you, if you're really interested in big cats, then, you know, you have to get up super early in the morning. You have to get out and you have to do the work. And then you'll find, uh, you'll find these big cats doing amazing things. For instance, one morning I was there uh, and we tracked two young lionesses trying to take down a fully grown hippo. Uh, and we followed that for quite some time as they attacked the hippo. And we were the only tourists there. We were it. I had the whole thing to myself. And that's because I was patient. I got up really early in the morning. I got up at four. We got out of the lodge before most people were even up. And we got to see things that nobody else gets to see. So you have to be motivated. You have to be patient. Patient, patient, patient. If nothing's happening when you roll up on an animal or, or when you sit there in your backyard and watch your squirrels for an hour or two, well, sometimes it has to take all day. Uh, in a hummingbird film I did for PBS Nature, we were filming a bird called the Marvelous Spatula Tail. Uh, there's only about 200 of these birds left, and there's a one hillside on a farmer's, there's a farmer's hillside in a place in Peru that has one tree. He's cut all the other ones down. There's literally one tree on the side of the hill where this bird can be reliably seen. So we trekked down there, the three of us with our cameras and tripods and everything. And every morning we hiked up this muddy mountainside in the dark, set up our camera, was ready to go by sunrise. Uh, we shot until about 11 o'clock in the morning or so. Then we all took naps. Then we shot in the afternoon. Then we went home. So we were there for three weeks every day, 21 days, staring at the same branch 
of the same tree on the side of a hill. And in fact, it was such a reliable place to see this bird. National Geographic had been there for three weeks before us in the same exact position. You could see where they had all been sleeping and crushed the bushes. And the BBC was coming directly after us for three or four weeks to sit in the exact same place. You could see where people were putting their cameras. So we were literally there for three weeks uh, and we ended up with maybe 30 seconds of footage. That's the ultimate in patience. In fact, there were two of us operating the camera because you can only stare through a camera so long before your eyes go fuzzy. So we were swapping, tag teaming the camera about every half an hour so we could stay fresh and be ready for the behavior for that bird when we, when we needed it. So that's sort of an, an extreme example. But um, the best wildlife photographers will tell you that patience, quiet patience, is the key to any great wildlife photography. Just be patient. Don't get antsy or itchy. And it's hard to do when you're lying there and you're hot blind. I, I did a show a long time ago for Discovery and we had to film prairie chickens early in the morning and two of us were crammed into this little hot nylon tent. And boy, by like eight o'clock in the morning, the sun was just blazing down and it was really uncomfortable. We were sitting in there sweating. But hey, that's what you got to do if you want to film sea turtles. You got to be up all night. You know, the sea turtles lay their eggs in the middle of the night. So you have to sit on a beach in the dark. They don't like lights. The lights will scare them away. They don't like sound so you have to sit with your friends or by yourself in total darkness in total quiet uh, sometimes the sand fleas are biting you and but then when the turtle comes and starts laying the eggs and you photograph it correctly without disturbing the turtle's behavior it's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see in your life but it requires a huge amount of patience uh, and sometimes placing yourself in in very uncomfortable positions and environments for an extended period of time most people don't like sitting uh, quietly on a beach at three in the morning by themselves with no lights and no talking or know nothing and just staring at the darkness it can take uh i've i've had to wake up at three in the morning more times than i can count to photograph an animal so and i've slept in the middle of the day you know waiting to photograph the animal at night if you're going to shoot bats or whatever you shoot them early in the morning you sleep all day and then you shoot them all night it depends on on your level of commitment really to get the photograph you want to get that's the bottom line your commitment to your art and your craft and knowing your craft is is uh, incredibly important that's sort of Stage three. Okay, stage three, making the photograph, knowing your craft. The first thing about wildlife photography is that you have to be quick but slow or slow but quick. A lot of people get very excited when they first see the animal or when the animal comes out of the den or whatever, and they move quickly and they, they pick up their camera and their body movements are very fast and that can scare the animal. Uh, most times it does. In fact, I've been guilty of that many, many times where I react too quickly to the animal, bring up my lens to my eye, boom, 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 whatever I'm doing. I make too much noise. I get too excited. I'm shuffling in my seat or whatever I'm doing and boom, the animal disappears or goes away or whatever. So you have to be quick but slow. So you have to sort of raise your camera in a very, you have to move your body in a very deliberate way. You have to be exceedingly quiet. Quiet is probably the biggest key to good wildlife photography. Being quiet is probably more important than anything else. Everyone chatters, chatters, chatters in national parks and whatever. But for you, you need to remove yourself from that environment, place yourself in a quiet environment and become part of the environment. That's key. Again, move slowly 
but quickly. And in order to do that, what it, that means is you need to know your equipment inside and out. So by moving slowly and deliberately, your hand is exactly on the camera where it needs to be. You know what all the buttons are doing. You, your other hand maybe is on the lens. You know exactly which ring is the focal length, which is the aperture, which is the focus. So all of these things need to become second nature. And in fact, you should be able to do all of these things in the dark. You should be able to change whatever settings on your camera in the dark, obviously without looking at them. You can just sit yourself in a closet during the day and just play with your camera and just feel it. It's like Braille. You know, if you can learn to read Braille, it's the same with your camera. If you just know where all the buttons are and you get this muscle memory of moving my finger from here to here to here to here, and then you won't have to spend time fumbling with your camera and making all these noises and, and being sort of a distracted human being, but you become one with your equipment. That's really really, really key for any really top-notch professional photography of any kind is that that equipment becomes an extension of your sort of eye-brain connection. So you have this eye-brain connection working in your in your head and that equipment becomes the third sort of extension of that. And the more you can build those sensory experiences into your craft, then you will you will have that sort of stumbling block, which for a lot of people is a big stumbling block. You'll have that mastered. And I've certainly been guilty of this numerous times where I the animal appears or is, is doing something and I'm fumbling because I don't have the right ASA or I don't have the right ISO. I guess I'm dating myself. I don't have the right combination of things going on in my camera to be ready for that environment. So you should always be prepared. So if you're, you know, if you're out in the door and outside to a test exposure, get everything ready to go. Don't worry and, you know, don't wait until you've, you, you see the animal. It's too late. A lot of times by then you need to be, be able to react exceedingly quickly, but exceedingly deliberately. And that's a big thing to learn. It's a huge one, uh, actually. Basic things. Uh, think about your depth of field, what aperture you're going to shoot at. Uh, do you want the fuzzy background? background, the out of focus background, do you want a sharp background, you know, what's important. Obviously the focus on the animal is paramount and usually the eyes of the, or the face of the animal is the most important thing. You know, choose a, an aperture, don't choose, don't try to shoot animals at, you know, 1.8 or 1.4 because it'll be almost, you know, you have a half an inch of depth of field. So it'll be really, really impossible. I shoot a lot of, you know, animals around four, something like that, five, six, or maybe even eight. Um, but sometimes eight is even a bit too much. So, you know, it just depends on what focal length you're at. Obviously, the longer focal length, the, the it'll help your background go out of focus more. But again, paramount is the eyes, the expression of the face. You know, like anybody else, humans are drawn to eyes. That's what makes great portraiture. What It's what makes great connection to your subject. You know, in a wider shot, if you have a huge wide shot of a vista and you have animals in the in the vista just dotting it or a big, say for instance, environmental portrait, if it's an art piece where you have a big building and there's just people on the sidewalk, that's not terribly important that you see their eyes because they become part of the environment. They're not the focus. So if the animal is just in a herd sort of and you're showing the grand vista of the Masamara where the wildebeest are trekking across the grass and there's thunderclouds in the background and Kilimanjaro or whatever, those animals are part of the overall environment. They're not the focus. So it doesn't matter then if you identify with each pair of eyes. But 
if there is an eye and there's a close-up of an animal and it is doing a specific behavior and it is what the focus of the story is, then absolutely the eye should be visible, should be lit. Try to have a catch light in the eye. You know, that's that little pinpoint of, of light that, that uh, is called a catch light that can really draw people to the eye immediately so they're not hunting around. Composition is a big thing, you know, placing your animal on a sort of rule of thirds, giving your, if the animal's looking left, give them space to look into the environment. Don't press them up against the frame. Don't crop too tightly. You know, a lot of people, I think, get, um, get very excited about their, their animals and they crop way too tightly because they're worried, you know, they want to show as much detail. But then you're sort of pressing the animal into the frame and not giving them room to live, uh, not giving them room to exist in the, in the world in which you've captured them. So that's very important to give the animal a space. Lighting, of course, matters. You know, a nice, strong backlight can, you know, through the feathers of a bird as they're flying can really give you some fantastic detail. Or, uh, you know, backlight on a lion mane can give you that sort of glowing orange halo around the animal. And then, you know, later on in post-processing, you can bring up the shadows, things like that. Just understand your lighting, you know, obviously shooting animals at noon with the sort of overhead, flat, top, harsh lighting isn't the best. But then again, sometimes that's the only choice you have. Magic hour is usually the best uh, for these kind of situations, but sometimes the animals aren't doing what you want to do at magic hour. So it's it's an art form really to sort of perfect the lighting. And with certain animals, you can uh, bring in augmented lighting. You know, you can provide a little bit of light or whatever. I shot, once I shot hummingbirds in pitch blackness with an IR infrared modified camera and I was using infrared lights. So the whole thing was happening in the darkness and the only way I could tell what I was lighting was by looking at the live view on the back of the camera but I was I was basically I was shooting a hummingbird in torpor that's when they sleep you can't wake them up so everything has to happen very quietly in the dark very deliberately so lighting you know is is all about you know making things better but again not disturbing the animal include the habitat obviously if you're if the habitat is important uh a for your animal, include that so we can see, get a sense of space, get a sense of environment, get a sense of where that animal lives. Penguins in Antarctica, it's it's quite dramatic to show them on an iceberg or, or something like that. So uh, environment can be, uh, habitat can be a huge thing. Obviously behavior clues, if you're shooting a hunting behavior, then really what matters there is the action of the predator-prey sort of dynamic. And again, then you're going to want to, you know, choose your shutter speed correctly, you know, shoot over 500th of a second, a thousandth of a second, whatever, to make sure you have that action tack sharp. Another word about focus is if you know what rear button focus is, for instance, uh, on a Canon, I have a 5D, you can assign the autofocus to the rear button, which is on the right hand side. And that way, when you're tracking an animal and then you you, you narrow the, the autofocus points down to just sort of the middle grid, like the center of the photograph. So if you just hold your hand on, hold your thumb on that button while you're tracking the animal, the lens will continually stay focused on that spot, which is great. Rear button focus. I use it all the time. You can focus and then pull your finger off of that button and the focus stays there. So if you know what rear button focus, if you've ever used rear button focus, try it out. If you don't know what it is, you can do Google it and then set your camera for that and uh, you'll be glad you did. Choose your angles wisely when you're photographing animals. If you're photographing small animals, then, you know, get down on their level because that's how they live. They interact with plants and everything from that eye line that's only a couple inches off the ground. So don't stand there and shoot down at them or, you know, sometimes with birds, obviously you can only shoot up at them, but it's better if you can put yourself on a higher level or whatever to sort of get a more straight on view of your bird. Do your best to try to get rid of that human centric point of view. 
That's what I'm trying to say. The human-centric sort of five, six feet up off the ground point of view, that's not how animals live their life, at least most animals that are in our size. So try to put yourself in the animal's shoes and perceive the world in a way that they do. And that will help convey the story and that will help convey the character, the character of the animal. And that's what you're trying to do. Get close if you can, obviously, but with respect to the animal. If you can get close, that's great. You won't have to crop so much. You won't have that telephoto effect. Depending on what your animal is and how comfortable they are with you, sometimes they'll let you get pretty close. Sometimes you have to stay quite a distance away. So it's that's a judgmental thing and it's an experience thing. But close portraits of animals are great. You know, shooting everything at 400, 600 millimeters or, or above, you know, that's wonderful too. But it's like seeing the world through a telescope. And that's not how people perceive things. So if you can get close, do it. You get some really funny angles, especially if you can have a, you know, super wide angle shot of a monkey or a, if you're an Indian, you, then the monkeys are running around and you can get very close to them, but be careful they don't steal your camera or your food or your hair. Know your craft. Photography really is a craft. It's it's not luck. And it takes a lot of practice like anything else. I mean, you can't be a woodworker overnight and you can't be a good photographer overnight. It takes years and years of practice, thousands of shots. You know, I'll go on a trip to Africa and I'll shoot 5,000 pictures and maybe 20 of them are something I want to show to my friends and family. So it takes just tons of trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. But the better you know your equipment, the better you understand your own philosophy, the better you you have your behaviors down, then the better you'll do with wildlife photography. Okay, post-processing quickly. I think the biggest thing with post-processing that I see in Lightroom, uh, not so much video, uh, but in Lightroom particularly, is over-sharpening. People are very concerned that you can see every piece of fur on a squirrel, every hair, or every uh, every detail in a, in a feather, or fake sort of, you know, using a radial filter to choose the animal and over sharpen that and then blur the rest of the background sort of unrealistically. I think that's the biggest problem people uh, have. They, they capture an animal and they're just so excited and they, they try to turn it into a hyper real situation. And I think Instagram is part of this uh, and that's a whole nother podcast. Resist that urge. Resist that urge to go too crazy with your sharpening and also with your colors. If you're making a sort of a, if that's your style or if you're trying to convey a certain, you know, colorful environment, that's fine. But there's an urge, I think, for a lot of people and it's because I think it's really tempting. And I've, I've certainly fallen into this trap myself. And sometimes it works really great, but not always, is to bump up the contrast, you know, bump up the sharpening, bump up the saturation or the vibrance and the texture and the clarity and all those things that you can do in Lightroom. And then you kind of overdo it sometimes. In video, it's a little different. You don't have quite that amount of control because in video, the sharpening looks really weird quickly. But video really is is more about telling a story because you can cut together a series of shots and make a sequence about whatever behavior it is your animal is doing. So, you know, if it's on the hunt, then you have all these different shots. You can shoot close-ups and following shots and tracking shots of, of and telling that story of the animal on the hunt. But usually in photography, the predator prey, you're waiting for that sort of climactic moment when the predator catches the prey or, or whatever. You're waiting for that specific moment, you, you're not really documenting the entire hunt, uh, which you might do in video, for instance, on a, on a nature documentary. 
Make sure your highlights and shadows are nicely balanced, but not too contrasty. Don't be also tempted if, you're, if your animal is backlit or something, uh, don't be tempted to bring up the shadows too much because then it can look fake. It can be like, well, where's the light that's in front of them lighting them up? It's, it's okay to lift the shadows a little bit to get some more detail out of that darker area. But again, it's uh, with photography, it's all about knowing, you know, what looks acceptable realistically and then contrasted with what has obviously been manipulated. You don't want people, the minute they look at your photo, they're like, huh, no way, never, because then they don't care about your photo. They're just making fun of your Lightroom technique and you failed. Uh, and that's kind of sad when somebody, you know, looks at your picture and you, you watch their eyes and you can tell right away that they're just like, eh, eh, whatever. So again, it's, it's about telling the story and telling it in your own sort of unique way. And maybe you have a style that's very uniquely you, but work on that style and make sure that it's sort of, if it's a hyper-realistic style, well, then that's okay. But then be consistent with it and, and make that your sort of signature. Don't just dance all over the board with with whatever you have just because you can. Just take a look at Instagram. You'll see what I mean, but that's a whole nother podcast. A basic word of, of thought is, you know, if it's not in focus, no matter what you do, it's never going to be in focus. If you've blown out the highlights or, you know, sunk the shadows way too dark, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to save it. So even if your photograph, the animal is doing precisely what it is you want them to be doing, but it's soft. Well, it's a bummer, but that's the way it goes. I have hundreds of those kind of photographs where the it's, you know, I've missed it because the focus wasn't just quite right. And, you know, no, no amount of sharpening or texture or clarity is going to solve that. Or third-party plugins, you know, you just can't fix it. As a side note, a big part of wildlife photography is learning to live with disappointment, learning to live with almost, learning to live with damn, I almost got that. Or you go back and look at it and it's slightly soft or whatever. That's unfortunately a big part of wildlife photography is just is missing the moment by a fraction of a second or uh, messing up the photo technically by a fraction. That's what drives you crazy at night when you go back to the lodge and you're looking at your pictures. In conclusions, be respectful. I think that's number one. Be respectful of the animal. Don't cat call the animal. Don't harass the animal. Don't feed the animal. That's a big one. Don't tease the animal. Don't taunt the animal. Those are huge in my book. Huge. Be respectful. Be professional. Have respect for what you're doing. Have respect for the craft. Have respect for the animal. Be quiet. Quiet, quiet, quiet is the biggest thing ever. Don't talk. Don't snap your fingers. Don't look at your phone. Pay attention. Be present. Be present in the moment. Watch the empty tree. Wait for the bird to show up. Pay attention. Be present. You're there for a reason. Do it. It's a big thing I have with younger photographers I've been with to Africa. They're riding, you know, they're riding around in the Jeep staring at their phone as we drive from one place to another. And they're not really paying attention to what's going on because they don't think it's useful because we're driving. Well, you never know what you're going to see and the driver can't see everything. And so if you're staring at your your phone, why did you even go on the trip in the first place? Move quick but slow, slow and deliberate. Be prepared, know your gear, know where your fingers go, slow and deliberate, slow and deliberate. But in order to do that, you have to really know your equipment. Be patient. This is probably number two after being respectful and quiet. Patience. Animals' lives are on a different scale than ours. They don't care that you're there. Patience, patience, patience. It's sometimes, like I said earlier, it can take you weeks to get the shot that you want. Obviously, we don't all have that kind of time, but patience is key. Patience is key. More than, you know, just a couple minutes here or there. Patience, patience, patience.
And related note, if you're really going to become a serious wildlife photographer or even a serious amateur, be prepared to don't to dedicate a serious amount of time because it does take a serious amount of time to sort of hone these skills. A, a one that I like to live by is that the animal is in charge, not me. The animal is paying my bill that day. Uh, if I can sell that image or that clip for my movie, the animal is in charge. The animal is the boss. I'm not I'm not the boss. I'm just there to to observe. Again, I'll say it one more time. Never lure an animal with bait. Never call an animal. Never yell at an animal. Never taunt an animal. Those are all huge no-nos. Never feed an animal. Don't harass an animal. Don't be aggressive with an animal. Don't put yourself between a mother and a baby. Don't put yourself between the predator and the prey. Be very cognizant and situate and have situational awareness of where you are in relation to the animal and its offspring, its family, its mate. Uh, don't just go bumbling into a scene because if you're in Alaska and you get between a, a mama grizzly bear and her new cub, the mama grizzly bear is going to win and they're going to find your camera on the ground with the last photo you took. So always be aware of where you are in relation to the animal. Maybe you're not even, maybe you can't even see the other parts of the scene that the animal is aware of. Maybe you're not aware of it, but watch the animal carefully. And if the animal is giving you clues uh, that you're too close or that something's not right, uh, then pay attention to that animal uh, and back off. Animals are not that hard to read. In most cases, they're pretty straightforward about what they intend to do or what they're feeling. And you can see it on their face or their particular behavior or if their hair stands up or whatever, you know, an animal is telling you something. So be prepared to uh, understand that and act accordingly. And again, you know, a big thing about wildlife photography is sometimes it's a serious pain in the ass. You know, like I said earlier, you're up early all the time. You're sometimes in trekking through nasty environments and you're muddy and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're tired and whatever. But the reward is that you have this special interaction with the wild world and the, and the animals there. And for me, particularly, that's what I value. I value that uniqueness of being able to watch the wild world happen in front of me, sort of unfolding the way that it has done every day for millions of years. That's really, I think, a privilege. I think wildlife photography is a privilege. It allows you as a photographer, as a person, as a human being, to go and experience nature in a way that a lot of people don't. And that's really the magic of wildlife photography is that, especially on a professional level, when you can get sort of rare access or limited access into nature areas or with animals or whatever that most people don't get, then you really get to sort of a peek behind the curtain and and, and you get to be in a position of, of experiencing nature in a way most people never do. And and frankly, I, I'm kind of astounded uh, at the number of people I see in national parks and stuff that, that really have no interest in nature whatsoever. And for me, that's kind of hard to understand. But it's a it's a unique thing to be a wildlife photographer, especially if you're really dedicated to it. And, and a big fancy camera and lens doesn't make you a wildlife photographer. And if you ever go on safari uh, to Africa, you'll see plenty of people with the most expensive gear you can buy and it's all brand new. Uh, that doesn't make you the best photographer. What makes you the best wildlife photographer is your intimate connection with nature, with the subject, with the animal, your passion for what it is you're trying to portray, not just a big fancy lens that you can get close and get a shot, you know, a, 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 a tight shot of a lion's face at, at 100 yards away. That's not what makes nature photography. What makes nature photography is your personal interaction with that animal, with that portion of nature that sort of you're immersing yourself in and you're becoming part of that. You know, humans are so loud and so noisy and so rambunctious all the time, banging and clanging. And if you ever listen to the world closely, just 
just shut down and listen to the world. It's an incredibly noisy, chaotic place. But if you're in the wilderness, it's an incredibly quiet, serene place where so much is happening if you only take the time to find it and observe it. Most people for wilderness, it's not happening quickly enough. It's not stimulating enough. It's There's not enough going on. There's nothing to look at according to them. And nowadays, everything is just plastered in front of our faces. We, we're not required to look. We're not required to see. Wildlife photography requires you to look, search, and see. And it, it really is a fundamental basis to establishing a new connection between sort of your eyes and your brain and the world around you, because it requires that, that, that heightened level of awareness to really be, be part of the animal's world, because most animals live in this heightened level of awareness, uh, you know, especially prey animals, and, and sort of to become part of that and observe that and live that just if only for a few moments really is, is an experience like no other. So I hope you got something out of this podcast, and I'll do another one sooner or later when I have time. Good luck with your animal photography uh, and filmmaking. Um, and I'm always available for questions, comments, whatever it is. You can find me on my website. Get in touch. I'm happy to have dialogue with anybody interested. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Adios. Bye.